This is Dan Wharton Uncancelled. Let's go. But it's time now for Uncancelled. And this is where Britain's top commentators speak out on controversial issues without the fear of the cancel culture sweeping the rest of the media. Liz Truss swept into number 10 earlier today, but the story could have been very different if globalist shill Rishi Sunak slithered his way to Downing Street. Disgraced lockdown architect Matt Hancock would have no doubt landed a plum cabinet return, while the likes of the World Economic Forum would have celebrated a Sunak victory. Truss, meanwhile, was a staunch opposer of the liberty-sapping restrictions suffered by this country for two years. Here's a reminder of her lockdown pledge during her Tory leadership campaign. Well, the answer is, I did. I did question it. I mean, I was not sitting on the committee that made the decisions. And clearly, in retrospect, we did do too much. You know, it was true draconian. I think there should have been more... I don't think we should have closed schools. Ever? No, I don't think we should. And a lot of children have ended up suffering, you know, educationally, with mental health issues, as a result of that. And I can assure you, and this group here today, that I would never impose a lockdown if I am selected as Prime Minister. Good news, but why did tens of millions of Brits simply nod along and submit themselves, locking themselves up at home and even grassing up their neighbours? Well, I'm delighted to be joined now by top author and star spectator columnist Lionel Shriver, who has penned a fascinating column on why so few people put their head above the parapet during COVID, despite clearly knowing something wasn't right. And Lionel, I have to say... I'm not just saying this because I wouldn't. This is genuinely one of the best columns I've ever read in my life. So I was so desperate to talk to you about it. Why did common sense go out the window for so many people during this pandemic? I haven't completely answered that question for myself, um, but I think it's worth asking all the time because um, what was really staggering about lockdown after lockdown wasn't so much the authorities that put them in place, but the fact that people accepted them and pretty much unquestioningly and literally overnight with the first one. It was like, oh, oh, oh. And when we had subsequent lockdowns, it was as if, oh, oh, here we go, another lockdown, as if we've been doing this for hundreds or thousands of years. When when previously a lockdown only applied to a prison or a, a you know an American school shooting drill, uh, we abdicated every civil right we used to think was inalienable that 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 it could not be taken away from us. But instead, uh, we we imprisoned ourselves in our own homes. We gave the government permission to tell us with whom we could associate, with whom we could even have sex. Uh, and, and there was a lot of de facto censorship of free speech. We had the media speaking with all one voice. And furthermore, not only did everyone more or less go along with it, but the very few people who spoke up and said, hold on here, are we sure this is really effective? And if so, uh, why haven't we done it before during previous pandemics? Why are we copying China of all all countries? You know, the few people who who, who voiced concerns were uh, demonized mm. and and treated like traitors and murderers. We were we, we were murderers. 
No, indeed. And, and I loved all of that. But then I think what I found most fascinating is the theory that you're developing that this phenomenon is something that's happening more and more in culture, the entire world being swept up in these movements that don't really make any sense, be it, you know, uh, all taking the knee for BLM or trans extremism. And we're just expected uh, to treat them as completely normal and not question things that just a few months earlier would have not made sense to anyone. Yeah, I'm, I think it's worth taking a step back occasionally. Um, and I, especially during the last 10 years, I've noticed a recurrence of what I would call social manias. Yeah. And they happen very quickly. Uh, the obsession with transgenderism, uh, the Me Too movement, the total hysteria, the international hysteria after George Floyd was murdered with the Black Lives Matter movement, and then COVID lockdowns. And I would say we're in another one with the so-called climate emergency. And, and it's a, the, when they take over, uh, everyone says the same thing. They think the same thing. They use the same phrases over and over again. Uh, no one brooks any dissent. Any kind of dissent against these social manias is perceived as treasonous or dangerous. Uh, and, and now we have social media uh, controlling us and uh, because anything that goes against these controlling narratives is misinformation or disinformation. Uh, I, I am a little mystified why this keeps happening. I appreciate the fact that we have had social manias before. I, back in the 1990s, for example, there was that uh, weird, um, that suppressed memory syndrome where everyone decided all at once that they had been abused by their parents when they were babies. Mm. It was horribly destructive. It tore families apart. No. It did. And, it's, and that's it, why it's so it, worth questioning, I think, if the acceptance of lockdown is part of something big going on in society. All I can recommend is I posted... Lionel's column on my Twitter page at Dan Wooten on Twitter. I implore you to read it. It was such an important piece of work. My goodness, I wish I'd written it myself. Lionel Shriver, uh, top author, star spectator columnist. Thank you so much. Neil Oliver is tonight's outsider. And if there's been one positive from the pandemic hell of recent years, it's the growing awareness of just how influential our planet's shadowy, unelected elites can be on sovereign nations. So from the World Health Organization to the World Economic Forum, more people than ever before are asking crucial questions about their globalist agendas, funding and intent. That also includes billionaire Microsoft founder Bill Gates, who has seemingly gone from software developer to global health expert with an obsession with vaccines. Gates famously said jabs were the best investment he'd ever made, so it's no surprise to hear growing concern over his potentially sinister involvement in COVID public health policy. Here's what Tory leadership candidate, uh, she's new leader of the House, Penny Mordaunt, told me when I quizzed her on her own relationship with the one-time associate of Jeffrey Epstein last week. One of the things that people were very concerned about uh, were your links to Bill Gates, because, of course, he is someone who has been very controversial over the past couple of years. His work with the World Economic Forum 
has worried a lot of people over the COVID pandemic. Um, do you just want to explain, because I don't think you've ever been asked about it before, what your relationship with Bill Gates is? And do you think he has too much of an influence on British politicians? So I don't think he has a, too much of an influence on British politicians. I think he's only come to Parliament a few times um, in, the, in the whole time that, that I've been there. I got to know him through international development. And he made uh, some investments in some of our universities to help uh, pest control. I know he's not everyone's cup of tea, um, <laughs> but I think sure. by and large, the world is a better place for having had Bill Gates in it. So, Neil Oliver, Penny Mordaunt there confirming that Bill Gates is at Westminster a lot. Now, she doesn't think we should be concerned about it, but I am, and I know you are too. I think it, it, it's possibly helpful to remember that Bill Gates is an oligarch. You know, we've, we've had you know decades of being told to be suspicious of and aware of Russian oligarchs, uh, as though as though those men, and it is, you know, it's almost, it is almost exclusively men uh, who have achieved uh, hitherto unimaginable wealth uh, are able to exert influence uh, that they're effectively buying. Uh, but we, we forget to remember that, it, that, that oligarchs don't just exist in Russia or they don't just exist in Ukraine, uh, that, they're, that they're in the West, uh, they're in the democratic West as well. Um, Bill Gates is, a, is an, an oligarch and he is able to buy influence. He's, he, he's got extraordinary reach uh, on account of his wealth. Um, you know, whatever, whatever you're involved in, whatever you're doing at home, whatever products you buy, whatever brands you, that, that you're interested in, the, the, the chances are Bill Gates is, is invested in them. Uh, you know, it would be it would be hard as a private person, far less a corporate entity, to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, untouched by the by the influence and the reach of of Bill Gates. His his fingerprints are everywhere now. You know, is is he is that necessarily malign? It, who knows? I think the question is, someone who's so involved and and who does, you know, there's Penny Mordaunt saying that he's that he's been in Parliament or or he's had connections to Parliament multiple times. We probably should know more about him because ultimately he is an unelected individual. Uh, he is just a private person, and yet he is able to exert considerable influence over decisions that are made on a global scale because he's fabulously wealthy. And you, you alluded to the fact that he's not a, he's not a scientist. He's a, he's a, he's a successful businessman. Uh, he, he's made his money selling software. Uh, but, but somehow or other, he, he's, he's extensively invested in, in vaccines around the world, has been for decades uh, in the third world uh, with mixed success, uh, as you said, he's, he has freely admitted that um, uh, vaccines are the best investment he's ever made. I think it's twenty to one is the return that he talks about. Uh, he's obviously he's able to he's able to fly under the under the flag of philanthropy, because the the general impression that most people have is of him giving away his money. Uh, yeah. You know, as though he's got, you know, uncountable billions. And by the end of his life, he's planning to have nothing left. He'll just have given it all the way on good causes. But for all of the money that he gives away via the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, he's making money hand over fist. 
on account of vaccines. You know, the, 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 the money's going out the front door where people see it, but, but much bigger sums are coming in the back door. Uh, you know, so he's, he is being personally enriched at a colossal rate at the same time as he's able to present himself as a, as a philanthropist. And it does beg the question, you or I get challenged all the time, you know, Dan, you're not a scientist, you're not a virologist, you're not an epidemiologist, you're not this, that, and the next thing, and so why are you talking about this subject? Well, neither is Bill Gates, but somehow or other he's able to have credibility. And he's the oracle. He's the oracle. Because... He's on CNN, he's on everything all the time. So, Neil, I mean, look, today we've seen this new government take shape. How important is it for Liz Truss and these new ministers to declare that they have no interests or connections with the World Economic Forum and, and that if they have anything to do with this body, they'll be transparent about it? Well, I, th I think it would be important, but I don't think it's possible that they can uh, de declare that, that they don't have any interest in or, the, or they're not influenced by these organisations. I, I think to some extent it was probably ever thus. We're probably all being naive if we think that governments 50 years ago or 100 years ago in this country were uh, were operating independently of, of, uh, of other organisations in the, in the wider world. I think it's simply on a, on account of internet and, and social media and the way in which we're all sharing information, it's just becoming more and more exposed, the, the extent to which yeah. uh, no, you know, government figures here are, in, are involved. And, and I think we just we need to know more about we need to know more about what and who someone like Bill Gates actually is, because there's no doubt they've, yeah. inv they've invested hugely in the media. They've spent he's, he spent hundreds of millions of dollars getting favorable coverage for himself. We need to know more about individuals. Bill Gates is not the only one, but, you know, he's no. the one that we're talking about. At the and that's moment. why and we, we will keep to on know this, about Neil Oliver, and I know that you will too. Neil, thank you so much. Breaking tonight, Liz Truss has begun forming her cabinet as she sets about delivering her ambitious agenda. In the past few moments, Kemi Badenoch has been confirmed as International Trade Secretary. That follows on from the announcement of Kwasi Kwarteng as Chancellor Therese Coffey as the new Health Secretary and Deputy PM and Brandis Lewis as the Justice Secretary. But arguably, the most important announcement was former Attorney General Suala Braverman taking over as Home Secretary after Priti Patel's resignation yesterday. The invasion of illegal migrants via the English Channel has become a national emergency and Braverman will be intently judged on the handling of that crisis. A key step could be freeing the UK from the influence of European judges and our new Home Secretary has told me just last month that both her and Trust were prepared to consider our position within the European Convention on Human Rights. Watch. Is she committed to leave the European Court of Human Rights? Well, Liz has told me that she will do whatever it takes to solve the small boats problem and you know, if that requires leaving the European Convention of Human Rights, then so be it. Yes. Nigel Farage, I mean, whatever it takes, if it means leaving the ECHR, then so be it. I'm sorry, we are going to have to leave the ECHR. And remember, that was a Suella Braverman policy position when she was running in the leadership election. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Dan, if I'd been a Tory MP, I would have voted for her. No question about it, because when she says stuff, she actually means it. It's genuine. It's real. It's based on conviction. What we don't know about Liz Truss is how much is conviction and how much 
is telling the electorate what they wanted to hear, in this case being Tory party members. I am doing my utmost uh, to give her, you know, a really, really good level of support in these first few days of the premiership. But when you stand outside number 10, uh, you know, on your first day as prime minister, and you decide to use that to outline your three key areas that you will deal with, and you don't even mention the channel, you don't even mention illegal immigration, I begin to get concerned. Now, I've no doubt what Suella Breverman would like to do. I've actually, to be honest with you, no doubt what Priti Patel would actually have liked to do, but of course Boris never cared about immigration. Boris always believed in open borders. Boris would have given amnesties to every single illegal migrant in the country. Boris was a globalist. But if the Prime Minister allows the Home Secretary to do her job, then we may have some hope. So look, I'm trying to give this new government a fair win. I'm trying to say, look, I will not criticise, I will not obstruct, I will not try and throw a spanner in, but you need to do the right things. But here's the problem. They need to do them very, very, very quickly. Yeah. Absolutely. There's no honeymoon period here, is there, Nigel? Oh, no, no, it, no, it, it's no. really interesting, Nigel. We're obviously seeing lots of folk enter number 10 tonight. They are moving fast. Kemi Badenoch just, in, uh, just officially confirmed as International Trade Secretary. Of course, that was a job that Liz Truss previously held. I have to say, Nigel, I am disappointed about that appointment, though. Not because I don't think she'll do a great job there, but I believe what we needed was the anti-woke warrior herself in either education or culture. But it sounds like, from what I'm picking up, uh, Liz Truss's team, perhaps quite sensibly, were a little bit worried about Kemi resonating too much with the grassroots members no. because, of course, she was a big threat to her during that early leadership campaign. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it is a truism that a wise general doesn't fight every single battle at once. And she does have the most enormous intray, I think, of any prime minister. You know, people say Jim Callaghan in 76. I actually think since Winston Churchill in 1940. Really? I mean, that's what we're in. And by the way, all this attempt to blame it all on Putin, forget it. The energy crisis is a self-inflicted wound. Low growth, low productivity are all self-inflicted wounds. 12 years of failure of the Tory party. And that's why we've had four PMs in the space of six years. At least when it comes to some principled economics, we've got trust talking sense. But does she? And here's the key question. You know, Mrs. Thatcher walked in there in 79, not trying to appease anybody. She was going in to shake the whole blooming thing up and she couldn't give a damn what people thought or what they said. She had courage. Does Liz Truss have that courage? I don't know the answer to that. You don't know the answer to that. But I'm prepared to give her a fair wind until we find out. No, I think you're right, Nigel. I've got hope. Uh, and as you know, I thought she was the right choice. I certainly don't think Sunak would have been the man for the job at this point. What, what do you make of the rumoured bailout, Nigel? I mean, we're talking about potentially £95 billion. <coughs> That's even bigger than the furlough scheme. We've no idea what the sum is because we don't know what the spot gas price is going to be. I mean, that's the point, you know, and, and, and we're talking about it for two years, not one year. We're talking about it up to the general election. You know, I mean, I've no idea. 
whether over the course of the next two years this costs 60 billion or whether it costs 500 billion. I've no, I mean, if you do this, you are signing a blank check. But let me just add this quick point. If you cap energy prices at a level that are just about affordable and we get a cold winter, people will use a lot of energy. And that will then put problems on supply. And once again, you know, Germany may be in Germany may well be in hock to Russia, but at least they have reserves, which they built up over the course of the last few months. We have no reserves. Our genius, pro-EU, just-in-time supply chain Tory party under Cameron and May, closed down our storage facility. So, Liz Truss, yes, of course, she must do something with prices. Whether capping the wholesale price of gas is the right thing, well, it's a hell of a big gamble, but she's got to be seen to do something, and I get that. Supply. She used, she's used the word supply once or twice. This is urgent. She needs to tell the country we are prepared to reopen what's left of our coal-fired power stations. She needs to tell the country we're going to start developing onshore gas, and if necessary, the government will invest a stake in those businesses. She needs to tell the country we will be self-sufficient by 2024. And I promise you this, if she can bring us energy independence, if she can leave the ECHR and stop the nonsense over the channel, if she can go for growth by encouraging not just big businesses, but the five and a half million men and women out there running small and medium-sized enterprises, acting as directors of limited companies or sole traders, and to take the burden of regulation off them, which is one of the reasons I pushed for all those years for Brexit. If she does those three things, she might just, not just save the Tory party, not just save her job, but save the country. And I say that because, final thought, yep. I believe we are on the edge of a precipice over which complete confidence in the financial system of this country and its standing in the world is about to topple over. Foreign direct investment is drying up. The interest of people around the world to buy our government debt is clearly now being open to question. We are, if she blows this, we will be back to 1976 and maybe even go to the IMF to get bailed out. This is an absolutely critical juncture in the modern history of our nation. Financial ruin is not very far away. And it's because of those reasons. Whatever I think about Liz Truss being a Remainer and voting for Mrs May's deal and all of those things, I am prepared to take her on face value at this moment in time. If she fails, it will be a landslide Labour victory. My God, there is a lot at stake. A lot at stake. Nigel Farage perfectly put. And of course, Farage back tomorrow night at 7pm here on GB News. Dan Wooten here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wooten tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News.